0: So, we are in a series on the book of John, the Gospel of John, and this is actually our fourth weekend in this teaching. And we've talked about John uh, actually wrote this letter a little bit later than the other Gospels. And he did so, uh, I believe, because there's an audience that he was trying to um, target that the other three Gospels don't. Uh, John's Gospel is a little bit different. I, I believe it was written to Jewish people who are very skeptical about who Jesus was. This is about 30 years after Jesus Christ has left the scene, and there are people who just didn't believe that he was the Son of God. And for John, he's like, I, if they miss Jesus, they're going to miss heaven. He understood that. And so uh, out of all the things that John saw, all the things that he was taught, he says, you know what, I'm going to write the things that actually point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. So the different Gospels cover different parts of Jesus' life, and they're not contradictory, they're complementary. But John says, okay, out of all the things that Jesus did, I'm, all, I'm not going to talk about his parables. Uh, those are good, and, and God has them in the Bible, but that's, that's not the thing that I'm going to use that are going to point people to Jesus. So there's no parables, not one, in the book of John. Out of all the miracles that Jesus does, John handpicks only seven. And I began thinking, why these seven? Out of of all of them that, that he performed, why seven? And then the stories that he chose, because again, John said, if I included everything that Jesus did, there's not enough books in the world to contain everything that he did in the three and a half years of his ministry. So why these stories? And this is what I believe. John says, you know what, because of my audience and what I'm trying to accomplish, I'm going to only pick those miracles that point to Jesus. Now, in the Hebrew scriptures, they said when the Messiah comes, these are the things he's going to do. The lame will walk, the blind will see, and the the dead will rise. So he includes all these miracles so that when people see in John's gospel that this is what Jesus did, they're going to be like, beep, I get it. Jesus is the son of God. Because the Hebrew scripture said that when he comes, the dead will, will rise, the lame will walk, the blind will see, and the deaf will hear. And in John's presentation, those things happen. And then he sort of wraps those miracles around some stories that also point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. But for me, in, in the, the study that I did this week, and I don't know if he continues it because I didn't, I didn't study this all the way out... But in the the first few stories that John does, not only does he point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God using a miracle, not only does he uh, point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God by a story, then he wraps it all in flesh with a personal encounter. And I think these three things help us to understand, or John's trying to help us understand who Jesus is. And so today what we're looking at is we're looking at the story of Nicodemus. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to start reading at the end of chapter 2 because there's a couple of things that that John wants to unpack for us before we get into this encounter that he has with Nicodemus. So in John chapter 2, uh, the last couple of verses uh, say this, verse 23. Because of the miracle signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew human nature. No one needed to tell him what mankind was like. So Jesus has been doing these miracles. Um, In life group this week, we talked about um, the temple. So last week, we talked about Jesus turning the water into wine. And the purpose behind this miracle was Jesus was telling people, I didn't come just to take your water and make it flavored water. I didn't just come to make your life better. I came to transform you. Turn your life from water to wine. Something that it's not. Something that you couldn't do on your own. And the whole picture of him using the cleansing uh, pots that used for, for uh, ritual cleansing. All those things had meanings. But the purpose behind this miracle is he's saying there's something that you're missing that, that needs to change. And it's a transformation. It's not, just, it's not just a better version of you. It's a complete transformation. And then in life group we talked about The temple where Jesus comes into the temple. He sees them selling and buying and doing all these things that God never intended for the temple to be a part of. And he turns over the tables and he runs out all those people who are selling. And they're like, what are you doing? Give us a sign if you truly are the son of God. He says, I'm going to destroy this temple. You destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the religious leader's like, what What are you smoking, Jesus? It took us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to rebuild it? And the whole point was, he's saying, I'm the temple. You no longer have to go through the temple process to get close to God. I'm the temple now. And it's through me you have a proper relationship or a right relationship with God. And so he knows this and he knows that people are beginning to follow him because of the miraculous signs that he's doing. Who would want to see this? I call this the selfie crowd. These are the people that see Jesus coming like, hey, let's get a picture of Jesus. Hey, Jesus. Right? Do something cool. So Jesus knows their motivation for wanting to hang out with him. It's not that they want to turn from their sin and begin following him, following Jesus with the rest of their life. They're wanting him to do a cool, cool magic trick. Hey, do that water thing again. I like that because I like me some wine. Right? Hey, Can you raise somebody from the dead? Because that's a really cool trick. But they don't recognize him as the giver of life. They simply see him as someone that they want to invite to their kid's birthday party to do some balloon tricks. So Jesus doesn't get this big head going, look at all these people following me, man. I got a huge crowd. Because he knows the condition of their heart. He knows that they're still dead in their sins. In Genesis chapter 3, God told Adam and Eve, when you sin, you're going to die. If you eat of this tree and you disobey me, you will die. And they did. Now, they didn't die physically, but that day they died spiritually. This is how Paul puts it in uh, Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Paul's saying it's through Adam, one man, sin enters the world. And since we're all physically born, we're all physically born spiritually dead. And unless something changes, there's this transformation that takes place in our life, inside, not outwardly, that's the condition of our heart. Then he goes on in Ephesians chapter 2 to to unpack it a little bit more on what the characteristics of a person that's like this. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, "'Once you were dead because of your disobedience "'and your many sins, you used to live in sin "'just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, "'the commander of the power of the unseen world. "'He is a spirit at work in the hearts of those "'who refuse to obey God. "'All of us used to live this way.'" following the passions and desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. But our very nature, we are subject to God's anger just like everyone else. So Paul says, yes, because we're born in Adam, we were born sinfully and we're born spiritually dead. We're characterized as unbelief and disobedience. Unbelief, not knowing that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God. And disobedience, we're not willing to submit our will, our life, to, to Jesus Christ. And that's how people who have not been born again live. Jesus unpacks all that. John tells us all that because now we get to be introduced to Nicodemus. He wants us to understand Nicodemus' condition. So let's look at Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Who is he? What's going on in his life? So it says there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee, And after darkness one evening, he came to speak to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evident that God is with you. So I want you to see that Nicodemus uh, is a very religious person. Some of the things that you need to know about Nicodemus is, one, he was a religious leader, meaning he was a Sanhedrin. A Sanhedrin was 70 guys that had been chosen to help um, the temple run smoothly. Basically, he was a pastor. He wasn't a rabbi, but he was a person who oversaw, sort of like an administrative pastor. Uh, Jewish customs tell us that this Sanhedrin uh, began all the way back in the the, uh, Hebrew scriptures when the children of Israel left Egypt. About two months into their journey, Moses can't handle them. There's over a million Jewish people who are wandering in the wilderness. They're upset. There's no food. There's no water. It's hot. And God tells Moses, hey, I want you to get 70 guys They're going to help you rule these people. And Jewish custom says that that's where the Sanhedrin was formed. And all through the wandering and all through the judges and all through the kings, they were a part of the Jewish temple that helped rule and reign in in the life of Israel. These people had clout. They were were important people. They were so powerful, they, they actually could bring charges against a king. No one else had that kind of power. Not even the high priest. So if a king did something, they could actually bring charges against them. And depending on the charges and the nature of the charges, they could actually bring an entire tribe to trial. They had that kind of political power. In the temple, they were the ones that oversaw the money, right? So they, they, had, they had power. No, we're not spending money on that. Yes, we will spend money on this. They had the ability to expand the temple, expand the, the, uh, the land of Israel. This is the type of people that the Sanhedrin were, and they ruled like that. Also, the Bible says that he was a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee, not every Pharisee was a Sanhedrin. Only 70 were. It was a very limited, a very elite group. But there were many Pharisees. So the two things that you know about him is that he was a religious leader, and he was a, a, a powerful person. He was powerful, he was educated, he was sophisticated. And later in John's Gospels, because we meet, Nick, we meet him twice, two other times he's very he's very wealthy but the thing with the pharisees was this because they were religious they were very legalistic Uh, they knew the law the ten commandments but because they didn't want to break the ten commandments they added new rules as a matter of fact there were over 650 new rules that they added to god's rules so that they would be right with god and this is the problem that Jesus had with the, with, with the Pharisees. He's like, you keep adding these rules and they're not a part of the Hebrew Scriptures at all. But they did so because they didn't want to break, they didn't want to violate God's law. But listen to some of the things that they, they argued about, whether this was sin or not sin. I found this on Bible.org. It says this, the Pharisees spent endless hours arguing whether a man could or could not lift a lantern on the Sabbath. Really? Really? Because they said, okay, after so many ounces, it becomes work. After so much weight, it becomes sinful. So as long as it's under a certain amount of ounces, not pounds, ounces, then it's not sinful. Uh, They debated whether a a tailor could um, could leave his house if he had a pin in his robe. Because he'd be taking his work with him. Whether it was sinful for a man to lift his child on the Sabbath. Because again, the child was weighed, weighed more than a couple of pounds, it was sinful. I read one that I thought was so ridiculous. They said that they would not spit on the ground on the Sabbath. For fear of, a seed would fall on the ground in the spit and grow a plant. And they would have planted on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, you got to be freaking kidding me. That's not what this is about. One day in Matthew, Jesus is walking through a field, and uh, it's on the Sabbath, and, and his disciples reach down, and they grab some grain, they, they break it open, they begin eating it. They like granola in that day. And, and the Pharisee's like, What are you doing? You're harvesting on the Sabbath. That's sinful. And he's like, I can't, what are you guys talking about? There's nothing in the Hebrew Scriptures about that. This is who Nicodemus is connected to, but I don't think he's like them. He's a part of their group, but I think he's completely different because he does come to Jesus and he uses a very respectful term when he calls him rabbi. Now, Jesus wasn't a, um, how do I want to say this? He wasn't formally trained. He didn't go through the rabbinical schools. He didn't need to, he was God. But according to their system, he hadn't been through the rabbinical schools, so technically he wasn't like a rabbi. But Nicodemus recognized this guy's got some skills that, I mean, this is incredible, the, the kind of teaching that he does. And so he refers to him in a very respectful way when he calls him rabbi. And he's the only Sanhedrin that came to Jesus asking an honest question or wanting to talk to Jesus. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't even get his question out. I don't, we don't even know why Nicodemus came. There's no question. Jesus goes immediately into his biggest need. And that, that he needs to be born again. Look at verses 3 through 4. So Nicodemus comes to him. He's like, we understand you're a milk worker. And Jesus is like, are you a selfie person too? You, just want my picture, you want your picture with me? So he jumps right into what is his biggest need. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, okay, what are you talking about? He says, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Now, this is a new concept that Jesus is rolling out to Nicodemus. He's a very religious person. He's been in the temple, is part of the temple. He's like, okay, you're you're talking about birth. I understand birth. I think we all understand birth. If you're here, you have been born, okay? You've experienced that. And so Jesus is trying to use this idea of birth to help us understand a couple of things. And that's what I want to share There's a couple things that we learn from physical birth that actually help us to understand the idea of spiritual birth. And so the first thing is this. There's a moment in time when you are born. If you want to take out your communication cards and turn it over, you can take some notes. I understand physical birth because I was born on February 23rd. You can go ahead and write that down. Very important date. But on February 22nd, 19, none of your business. I wasn't born, but on the 23rd of February, I was, and I have a birth certificate. I've never doubted whether I've been physically born, okay? You may doubt that I'm alive, but I I know that I am. I have a birth certificate that tells me where I was born, how much I weighed, what hospital it was, the date, the time, all of that, and so Nicodemus is trying to Wrap his mind around it. And I understand that because I didn't fully understand birth. I mean, I was there when I was born. I don't remember a lot about it. Um, But I had that piece of paper. It wasn't until my daughter, my oldest daughter, was born that I fully understood physical birth. My wife nudges me, and we've been preparing for this. It was January 25th, 1989. I'm sorry, 98. Yeah, 98. She'll be nineteen. Got to get this right. And so she nudges me. It's midnight, Saturday night. I'm a minister. I got church the next day. And she nudges me. She's like, it's time. And so like brand new people, we're like, okay, bags are packed at the door. Let's rush to the hospital because this baby's not being born in my car. I'm not cleaning up the mess. Because we've all seen videos, right? And so we rushed to the hospital. And 21 hours later, my daughter was born. And so I'm there, and I don't know why they allow dads into the room. <laughs> what qualifies me to be in the room in this medical procedure? If they were doing brain surgery, would they allow me in? No. So what, what makes me more qualified to, to help with birth? I mean, they wanted me to cut the cord. I'm like, I haven't been through class, right? All I know is I was born... Again, I don't remember much of it. And we went to a couple of classes. I actually watched a birth take place. Found out later it was actually the teacher's home video. That made it really awkward. <laughs> so, so I'm in this room, and I've got two videos under my belt, and I've been born. That's it. And, and I'm, I'm trying to coach my wife, breathe, breathe. You know, I'm doing awesome. I'm, I was a good coach. I was a good coach, but I'm just telling you, 21 hours, I was exhausted. <laughs> it takes a lot out of you. You know, I mean, I was, I was spent emotionally, physically. I was tired. And so I'm like, push, push, push. And the doctor goes, hey, come look. Because I was up at the head talking to my wife all that time. And he goes, come look. Let me just say, if this is your first child and the doctor says, come look, punch him in the throat. <laughs> I don't have a good poker face. So I went and looked and I was like, oh, <laughs> man, i began begin apologizing. I'm so sorry, sweetie. That looks like it hurts. I mean, I'm saying really encouraging words. And I don't know why, but I'm like, come on, one more push. One more push. Like she's going to hike this baby to me. And this should have given the doctor an indication I had no business being in that room. For 45 minutes, one more push. One more push. The doctor said, you're an idiot. Leave. Oh, did I tell Maybe I was doing this because did I tell you it was, it was Super Bowl Sunday? So I really was no good. It's like, I was distracted. (laughs) But there was a moment in time when Courtney was born. Before that, she was alive in the womb, but she was not born. And spiritually, it's the same way. And the reason that Jesus is even having this conversation with Nicodemus is because he hadn't been spiritually born. Now, we don't use born again a lot here at Grace Church because it has a connotation of wackos. The person on, on the train, on the T, that has the sign saying turn or burn, right? That's the person who's a born-againer. And we're like, we're not crazy. We love Jesus. We follow Jesus. We're just not crazy like that. But Jesus uses this term, born-again, because he's giving us the idea that there's a moment in time where you're not spiritually alive. You're dead. And then you are. I think some of the scariest verses in the Bible are found in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, says this, beginning in verse 21, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we've prophesied in your name, we've cast out demons in your name, we've performed many miracles in your name, but I will reply, I never knew you. There was never a moment where you turned from your sin and you were born spiritually. He says, there are many that will say this. That, to me, is the scariest part. There will be many that say this. God, I was very religious. Every single week, I went to Grace Church. I helped out at church. I helped out in the community. I I worked on my marriage. I went to a seminar. I did all these things. And he's like, I don't don't know you. You're still still spiritually dead. There's there's not been a moment in your life where you turn from your sin and begin following me. That's the reason he's having this conversation with Nicodemus. Do you think Nicodemus never prayed to God? He worked at the temple. I'm sure he talked to God every single day. Do you think he didn't offer sacrifices just like every other Jew? He did. He did. I'm sure because he was part of the temple um, uh, administrative team, people came to him and said, hey, can you help me with my relationships? Can you help me with my kids? What advice would you give me? He did all those things. But Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus. He's saying there's something that's missing in your life that hasn't happened yet. You haven't had that moment. And I think of all the people in the Bible that I think a lot of Westerners, people who call themselves Christians can relate to, it's Nicodemus. They go to church on Christmas and Easter. They may may even go every single week. But they've not been born again. They're still water. They're not wine. They're still dead. They're not alive. They're still walking in darkness, not the light. And so one of the things that we learn from, from physical birth is that there's a moment in time when you go from not being born to being born. And so one of the questions I want to ask is, do you know that you have that moment? Because here's the scariest thing that I hear from people who say that they're a believer. I ask them to share their story. Share your story of, of coming to faith. And they say, you know, I just, I've, always, I've always believed. I can't remember a time when I, I didn't believe. And that scares me. Because I'm looking for, I'm listening for this moment in time where I knew, I recognized that I was a sinner and I called out to God to forgive me of my sin and I turned from my sin and I asked him to save me. And I don't hear that in their story. I hear that I just I've always believed. I've always gone to church. I've been raised in church. My parents are religious. And I don't hear that moment in time where they went from death to life. It would be like you ask me, when were you born? I've just, I've always been alive. As far as I can remember, I've always been alive. You say, That's, that doesn't make any sense. Spiritually, that doesn't make any sense. This is why Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you've got to understand, you are not spiritually alive. The second thing that I think we learn from physical birth that helps us understand the spiritual birth is this. You don't contribute to the birth. I didn't tell my mom, hey, February 23rd, I'm coming out. Ready or not, that's the date that I picked. I had, I didn't do it. When it was time, it was time. I didn't, I didn't contribute at all to my physical birth. And this is, saying, this is the thing I think it's really holding Nicodemus back because he's so religious. He feels like he's helping God out with his religious service. Look at, look at verses 5 through 9. Jesus replied, Surely no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only humans, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to, the, to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born again. And again, he's like, I don't understand this. How can this be? And Jesus is saying, I don't understand what you don't understand about this, Nicodemus. Human people produce humans. And it's the spirit of God that produces spiritual life. He says in the next verse, aren't you a Jewish leader? Aren't you a rabbi? Aren't you a Sanhedrin? And you don't understand this idea that it's God that does this and not you? Now, there's no way that Jesus could actually make that statement if there was nothing in the Hebrew Scriptures that would point to the fact that it's the regeneration, the being made alive, is something that God does rather than something that we do. If that wasn't taught in the Hebrew Scriptures, then Jesus couldn't say, why do you not get this? This is something that you've studied. This is something you should know as a religious leader. So what was Nicodemus missing? He was thinking of the Ten Commandments. He wasn't thinking of Ezekiel chapter 36. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God talks about this. When he tells Ezekiel, hey, I want you to do something. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse number 25. He says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and I will make you clean. This is God talking about the children of Israel and what he's going to do. He says, Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. He says, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out that stony and stubborn heart, and I will give you a tender and responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. What he forgot Was that in Ezekiel, God says, this is something that I'm going to do. You have a stony heart. You are cold. You are dead. And what you need is a heart transplant, one that is actually soft. But you can't do that. I have to do it for you. And I do that through my spirit when I give you my spirit. In the next chapter, he says, let me give you a a physical illustration Chapter 37 is is the story of the dead bones, the valley of the dead bones. He says, go out to this valley. There's dead bones everywhere. He says, now tell the dead bones to form into a body. And these skeletons do. You want to talk about the living dead? You know, that that would would creep me out. Here's all these people standing, but they're actually dead. And Jesus says, they look alive, but they're not. They're missing something. And he says, tell the wind. And and the wind comes and the wind blows. And the wind is simply a picture of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you don't understand the wind. It's the power of the wind that you don't control the wind, you don't control this birth. And so the wind blows on this valley and these dead bones that have flesh on them now become alive. And Jesus says, that's how birth takes place. You don't understand that? Think of Ezekiel. That's what takes place. Your religious activity does not produce spiritual life. Be a good person. The question God asked is not going to be, are you a good person? He's going to ask, are you innocent? And we're going to say no. He's going to ask, are you alive spiritually? And if you've not turned from your sin, the answer is no. Religion is to spiritual life What mortician makeup is to a person who has passed. Both help people look more alive, but neither produce life. You can put as much makeup, religious makeup, on as you want. It doesn't make you alive. Religion is like the mortician makeup. It just makes you look better. It doesn't make you alive. And I think a lot of people who go to church every single week They're just simply people with makeup on. They've not been transformed. They've not been made new. They've not been gone from from water to wine. They've not gone from life, from death to life. They're just people that come with religious makeup on, hoping that they look good enough that God will accept them. God looks at Nicodemus and says, you got a whole lot of makeup on, but that's not what makes you right with me. So he begins to tell them, what does make you right with God? He's going to share an illustration from the Hebrew scriptures that points to himself. Look at John chapter 3 again, starting in verse number 4. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. One of the most famous verses in the Bible. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son, so everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world or condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. So he says, let me, let me just point you to the, to the cure. It's not your religious activity. It's not you trying to be right. It's me. The water into wine, that was all me. You did nothing. Cleaning out the temple, destroying the temple, being raised again, I was talking about me. You remember the story when the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness and they started complaining, so I sent snakes into the camp and they began biting people and they were dying? What was the cure? I provided the cure. I told Moses to put a serpent on a pole. And anyone who had the faith to believe that they could be healed by looking at it, they were. I'm that person that will be raised up on a tree. I will die for people's sins. And those who put their faith and trust in me will be rescued. That's it, Nicodemus. In life groups this week, we see two other encounters that Nicodemus has in the book of John. And you're going to talk about, do you believe, based on these two other encounters, that Nicodemus went from death to life? I'm not going to tell you what I believe. But it's pretty cool that, God, that John continues to, to bring about Nicodemus. Because right now, at this point, Nicodemus is still dead spiritually. He doesn't get it. But he may or may not have. You have to go to life group this week. So let me ask you these questions. So what does that mean for us? What does this story mean for us? Well, the first thing is this. You have to recognize that if you've not turned from your sin, you're still spiritually dead. You're alive physically, but you're disconnected from God. And you have to recognize that. And it's only in turning from your sin to begin following Jesus that, that God gives you his spirit, and then there's life. The second thing that I think you need to recognize is this, that you personally have to come to God. I can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. Your priest can't do it for you. Your mom and dad can't do it for you. You personally have to come to God. Nicodemus didn't get any special treatment because he was a religious person. We saw last week Mary got no special treatment just because she was the mother of Jesus. Every individual has to come to God. When Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, you must be born again, that you, it's a personal pronoun, but in the Hebrew, or in the Greek, there's a plural ending. And basically what he's saying is, you guys, you Sanhedrin, you Pharisees, you religious people, you guys have to turn from your sin. The, The nation of Israel has to turn from their sin. And you too, Nicodemus, you have to turn from your sin. You personally have to turn from your sin. And until that, You're not made new. You're not made alive. I think another thing that it means to us is this, that we have to stop trying to earn God's love. God already loves you. That's why he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to pay for your sins, to rescue you, because he loves you. Stop putting the religious makeup on. God sees through the makeup. There's no amount of, Blush. There's no amount of foundation. And I'm really weirded out that I know all these makeup terms. God sees right through it. He knows your condition. That's why he started off the whole encounter with Nicodemus saying, I know what they were like. And that's why he went straight to Nicodemus's biggest issue. And that was his heart. So what do you need to do? I think you need to evaluate your life. Ask yourself this question. When? did I turn from sin to begin following Jesus? Here's an application step that I want you to take this week, and I want everyone to do it. I want you to write out your spiritual story. Answer these questions. When, where, who, and what was going on? Where were you when you called out to Jesus? When was that? What was going on in your life that that prompted you saying, you know what? I know that I'm screwed up. Maybe it was a marriage. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was an addiction. And you finally found out that, you know what? I can't fix me. I can dress myself up. I can make myself look presentable. I can put all this makeup on, but it's not changing my heart. There's no transformation. And you realized that you needed to call out to Jesus to save you. When was that? And write out that. How awesome would it be when you did pass from this life? Your kids are going through your important paperwork. They find your story. Along with your will, along with all those other important papers, they find mom and dad's story of how you personally turn from sin and begin following Jesus. That would be awesome. I think it would be a great thing to help your kids write their story. Because you might find out, one, that your story is much like nicodemuss You just always have been religious. You've always just believed, but there's never been a point in time. Or maybe your children, that's theirs. Mom and dad, you've always taken me to church, so I've always believed. And you can push in a little bit on when was that? What was going on? So that you can know for sure. Eternity's too long to to take this short life and hope that you make heaven. I don't want to hope. I want to know. That's why John wrote his gospel so that you can know and not just hope. And that's my prayer for you. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Because I want you to evaluate your life. You need to ask this question, when was it? and i'm not i'm not trying to make you doubt your salvation i'm not trying to make you to question your salvation my hope is that you strengthen it if you truly have turned from sin and begin following jesus but if you haven't then i do want you to wrestle with that i think it's important that you nail that down because religion doesn't save good works they don't save And if that's what you're trusting in, you are spiritually dead. And if you die physically in that condition, you will spend eternity separated from God. And I don't want that for you. But I can't make you turn from your sin and call out to Jesus. I can't. Like Nicodemus, you have to do that personally. So wrestle with that question. If you haven't nailed that down, what an awesome thing that October 2nd, 2016 becomes your spiritual birthday if you'll simply call out to Him and ask for forgiveness. You could claim today as your spiritual birthday and every year celebrate your spiritual birthday. You could do that. You simply have to call out to Jesus. And I'm going to give you a moment to do that. You say, What do I say? Tell God that you recognize that you're a sinner. That your sin is what separates you from him. It's what makes you dead. And what you're asking is for eternal life. You're asking Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, to rescue you. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's his promise. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time. I would ask you, who are the Nicodemuses in your life? Who are the people that look like they're very religious, but you see no transformation? They still live in unbelief and disobedience, and it really doesn't bother them. They look really good on Sunday. They put their religious makeup on, but there's no transformation. Maybe God would use you, even this week, to share Nicodemus' story and ask the Holy Spirit to apply that to their life so that they see that they have to turn from their sin and begin following Jesus. God, I know the scriptures say that you're not willing that any should perish. It is your hope that people would recognize their desperate need to be rescued from their sin. Then short of turning from their sin and begin following you, it is simply religious makeup. And God, my prayer is that they would recognize today that they desperately need you. They would call out to you for the forgiveness of their sin and be made new, born again. God, for the people in our lives that are disconnected from you but seem like they're all set, God, help us to have this conversation. Help us to share the story of Nicodemus. And God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would prompt them that they too are lost, dead in their sin, disobedient, disconnected, and God that they would recognize they need you. God, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for His sacrifice, His willing to die on the cross to pay for our sins that we could not pay for ourselves. And God, you offered that to that freely. I'm thankful for that. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.